This week, Hertz says alternative plan proposal superior to current sponsor proposal. Sea drill cash collateral order extended through August 31st. Summary judgment on Malincroft's dischargeability complaint against Akthar claims set for June 7th. Month-long trial wraps on motions to dismiss and appoint examiner NRA bankruptcy. Nine-point debtors prevail preliminary move to reject midstream gathering agreement. Promesa Oversight Board and Monoline insurers enter into plan support agreement. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. This week, we'll be adding a new feature discussing certain middle market case updates in addition to our regular recap of the week's events. Please reach out to us and let us know what you think of the added coverage. Later, Julian Boulon and Peter Washkowitz will be taking a deep dive into recent moves by Canadian business jet manufacturer Bombardier, trying to head off accusations by a group of its unsecured note holders that recent asset sales may have triggered an event of default under the company's debt documents. It's Friday, May 7th. In the Hertz cases this week, the debtors recognized a recently submitted sponsor plan by Knighthead Sertaris as a superior bid to take the company out of bankruptcy to the current sponsor bid from Center Ridge Partners, Warburg Pincus, and Dundon Capital Partners. According to sources, the Knighthead Sertaris reorganization proposal provides Hertz's existing stockholders cash consideration, participation in a rights offering, and warrants to purchase 10% of the company's reorganized equity. Sources say the proposal values Hertz with a total enterprise value of $6.25 billion and includes a now $1.5 billion preferred equity investment, down from $2.5 billion with a $1 billion flex-down option in the group's previously outlined proposal. The Centerbridge Warburg Dundon contingent have until today, May 7th, to tell Hertz whether they will be submitting a counteroffer to the Knighthead Sertari's proposal. The Centerbridge Warburg Dundon team has indicated they are working on a counterproposal. If they do submit a counterproposal, Hertz will conduct an auction on May 10th to determine the winning bid. At a heavily contested cash collateral hearing in the C-Drill Debtors Chapter 11 cases, counsel to the NADL lenders, SVP, and Bybrook said that in the 18 hours before the hearing, the facts on the ground had indeed already changed, including with the apparently unsolicited bid from Noble Corp to acquire a substantial portion of C-Drill's assets. Debtors' counsel stressed at the hearing that they were committed to reviewing and evaluating any third-party proposals consistent with their fiduciary obligations. Related to the cash collateral issues, Judge David Jones entered an order that extends the debtor's cash collateral use through August 31st, with the proviso that if at any point before then any parties believe that the debtor's authority to use cash collateral should be terminated, such parties can file a motion requesting an emergency hearing. Judge Jones said he would consider any emergency request to terminate cash collateral with a clean slate and that the debtor should be prepared to meet their burden to continue using cash collateral if it came to that. The order entered by Judge Jones differs from the proposed order in that it does not strip the ad hoc rig co-lender group from its consent rights or make payment of the ad hoc group's fees permissive rather than mandatory. Instead, the order retains all the terms of the debtor's final cash collateral order other than extending the termination date of the order to August 31st, and adds a provision permitting parties in interest to file an emergency motion requesting a hearing on the debtor's authority to continue using cash collateral. Also absent from the order are any conditions to cash collateral use. Lenders SVP and Bybrook had argued that continued use of cash collateral be conditioned on the debtor's commitment to timely respond in good faith to any asset sale bids received, including by providing response to the ad hoc rig co-lender group's bid proposal. 
In the Malincroft cases, on Wednesday, Judge John Dorsey scheduled a June 7th hearing on the Malincroft debtor's motion for summary judgment in the recently filed adversary proceeding against the private Akhtar claimants that, according to debtors, was filed to resolve the $203 billion in allegedly unsubstantiated private Akhtar claims filed against debtors other than litigation defendants Malincroft ARD and Malincroft PLC after years of pre-bankruptcy litigation. The private Akhtar planes have responded to the complaint, arguing that the debtors have failed to outline an actual justiciable controversy, and that the complaint effectively seeks an advisory opinion on the dischargeability of the plaintiff's claims. The Malincroft debtors had requested a June 2nd hearing on their summary judgment motion, claiming that the schedule was necessary to keep the debtors on track for an August confirmation hearing, and also needed to move quickly to lock in exit financing at favorable terms. The private Akhtar planes objected to this saying that the schedule would undermine and potentially derail any mediation of the dispute, arguing that discovery should be conducted before any hearing. Judge Christopher Sanchi had previously been announced as mediator in the dispute. At the Wednesday hearing, Counsel for Humana noted that last week it filed a motion to estimate its own Akhtar-related claims, as well as a separate motion seeking allowance of an administrative expense claim against the debtors for at least $45 million, the amount Humana has paid for Akhtar since the petition date. Humana has argued that its general unsecured and administrative Akhtar claims must be determined before confirmation because the feasibility of the debtor's plan turns on the size of Humana's claims. Counsel for Humana also said that the Malincroft and Humana have been discussing how to align the litigation of the Humana claims with those of the private Akhtar claimants, and said that they will be back before the bankruptcy court if the parties are unable to reach an agreement. Malincroft, in its first quarter earnings release, said Akhtar sales fell 23% year-over-year to $129 million. Moving to middle market situations, in the NRA bankruptcy cases on Monday, after nearly a month of hearings, arguments closed on a motion seeking the appointment of an examiner or outright dismissal of the NRA's Chapter 11 cases brought by the New York State Attorney General and Ackerman McQueen, the NRA's former PR firm. The New York AG asked the court to dismiss the NRA cases with an 18-month bar from refiling. Not dismissing the cases would be the same as the court condoning the propositions that avoiding state enforcement actions is a legitimate bankruptcy purpose and that the venue rules have zero meaning. The New York AG also argued that the formation and filing of an NRA entity in Texas prior to the bankruptcy filing was impermissible forum shopping, calling it a poster child of a case filed in bad faith. The New York AG also argued that there was no financial reason for the filing and that the debtors were undisputedly solvent. Counsel for Akron McQueen said that the NRA's hands were actually made filthy by the dirty work done to file the Chapter 11 cases and that the cases are, quote, pay paid with the coin of blatant fraud and called the bankruptcy an elaborate cynical scheme orchestrated by Wayne LaPierre, the NRA CIO, to defraud the NRA's board. United States Trustee's Office also expressed support for the dismissal or, on the alternative, the appointment of a trustee or examiner with expanded powers. Counsel for the NRA countered that the NRA was within its rights to seek bankruptcy protection because enforcement actions taken by New York State, which the NRA said interfere in its banking relationships and its ability to provide insurance coverage to its directors and officers, constituted an existential threat. The NRA argued for the appointment of a CRO to follow through on the NRA's recently filed plan of reorganization rather than dismissing the cases or appointing a trustee or examiner. Counsel for the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors supported the NRA's request to appoint a CRO. Judge Harlan Hale said that he expected to rule on the motions early next week. In the Nine Point Energy Holdings bankruptcy cases, Judge Mary Walrath issued an oral ruling on dueling motions to dismiss and for summary judgment in the adversary proceeding related to certain of the debtors' gathering agreements with Caliber Midstream Partners, the debtors' largest midstream services provider. The adversary complaint brought by the debtors sought declaratory judgments that the debtors had validly terminated the contracts pre-petition and that certain covenants in the gathering agreements did not constitute transfers of real property interest to Caliber, allowing the debtors to reject the contracts in bankruptcy and sell their assets in a 360 
63 sell free and clear of Caliber's purported interest in the property. Although Judge Walrath granted the motion to dismiss on whether the Caliber agreements were validly terminated pre-petition, she granted summary judgment on everything else, which effectively freed the debtors to move forward with an asset sale unburdened by the Caliber contracts. Judge Walrath's ruling adds to the growing list of bankruptcy courts that have allowed rejection of midstream gathering contracts despite counterparties' arguments that the contracts include real property interests that, quote, run with the land and prevent rejection under the usual operation of the bankruptcy code. Critical to Judge Walrath's decision was her finding that a final determination of whether the covenants at issue constituted real property interests were, quote, core matters under the bankruptcy code, which required her to rule on the issue rather than to have a non-bankruptcy court determine the issue, even though it was purely a matter of state law. Judge Wallace reasoned that the matter was core because it weighed heavily on the time-sensitive sale of the debtor's assets and was determinative of the ultimate scope of the bankruptcy estate and would ultimately have a tremendous impact on the debtor's ability to consummate a sale. Turning to the Allen of Puerto Rico, on Wednesday, the Promesa Oversight Board and Monoline Insurers Assured Guarantee and National Public Finance Guarantee Corp. announced their entry into a planned support agreement with respect to the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority bonds and the Puerto Rico Convention Center District Authority bonds. The PSA would settle Assured and National's clawback claims against the Commonwealth and also provide a framework to restructure the HTA and CCDA debtors. The Oversight Board says that this framework serves as a template for treatment of other clawback claims held by similarly situated creditors at other credits. The PSA is supported by holders of over $2 billion in claims against HTA, including more than 85% of HTA 1968 bonds, just shy of 50% of HTA 1998 senior bonds, and almost 40% of CCDA bonds. An amended plan incorporating the terms of the PSA still remains to be filed. A hearing on the disclosure statement is slated for July 13th. The PSA also says that the parties will endeavor to file the HTA plan by January 31st, 2022. Top Red Stories this week included... U.S. government presses court to impose 12- to 18-month prison sentence for Kamensky, departing from probation officer's non-custodial sentence recommendation. Cineworld requests flexibility to use super-priority delayed draw term loan proceeds to settle outstanding regal Cineplex lawsuits, receive $73 million of $202 million CARES Act tax cash receipt. Judge Isger rules that Mesquite Energy may reject Occidental Petroleum Group contracts, although Occidental retains real property interest granted in gathering agreements. Now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Greetings all. Happy to report that the fire hose of earnings releases has been somewhat depressurized. There are, of course, a handful, but nothing like the previous two weeks. Monday, May 10th, we have Diebold Nixdorf, Alpha Natural Resources, and Scientific Games. Tuesday, May 11th, earnings from Dana Ose and a second-day hearing in Automotors Gildemeister. Wednesday, May 12th, Chesapeake in its first post-reorg earnings and a preliminary injunction motion hearing in Carnival along with a DS hearing in Purdue Pharma. Thursday, May 13th, California Resources, another post-reorg name out with earnings, and a recognition hearing in Samarco. Friday, May 14th, a DS approval and plan confirmation hearing for C-Drill and a motion to dismiss hearing in PG&E. And that's it for me. Back to New York. Next up, Julian Boulaun and Peter Washkowitz from our America's Covenants team will discuss Bombardier and whether recent asset dispositions by the company may have triggered an event of default under Bombardier's debt documents. Thanks, David. With me today is regular podcast guest and head of our America's Covenants team, Peter Washkowitz. Peter, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this week, Peter published an event-driven analysis of Canadian business jet manufacturer Bombardier addressing whether recent asset dispositions by the company may have triggered an event of default under the company's debt documents. Last month, 
Bombardier received a letter from Boyce Schiller on behalf of Antara Capital, a holder of the company's 2034 unsecured notes, claiming that because the sales involved all or substantially all of Bombardier's assets, the company had breached certain covenants under the indenture. On Monday, Bombardier announced that it was seeking consent from its note holders to amend each of its indentures to quote-unquote clarify that its recent divestitures were permitted transactions and did not give rise to any defaults or events of default. So, Peter, before we jump into the legal aspects of your analysis, can you first tell us a little bit about the transactions that gave rise to this dispute with Antara? Yeah, sure. So, um, so in the beginning, let's say, let's just go back to the beginning of 2019, um, Bombardier uh, operated through four different uh, operating segments, uh, their business aircraft segment, commercial aircraft segment, aerostructures and engineering services segment, and transportation. Transportation is, is their rail car business. Um, and so in the beginning, so I, you know, in the middle of, let's say mid, mid 2018 until, uh, you know, recently, just a month or so ago, um, they engaged in a series of asset sales whereby um, they effectively sold their entire commercial aircraft unit, their entire aerostructures and engineering services unit, and their entire transportation uh, uh, unit. And so now they are left with just their business aircraft unit. Now the, the, the sales, they're not being contested on you know, fair market value. I mean, you know, they, they receive significant amount of money uh, or proceeds. They've used those proceeds to repay debt. But um, in, you know, in the progress of doing all of these transactions, they've gone from having four operating segments down to just the business aircraft uh, unit. Okay, and so in, in dollar value wise, how what is how how big are we talking? How 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 much money did these uh, businesses go for? Well, so the the transportation unit uh, it, it was the most valuable. I mean, on a, on a revenue basis, um, for fiscal two thousand twenty, the transportation unit uh, generated six point eight billion uh, of revenue, and the smallest is the commercial aircraft. You know, that was about um, call it three hundred fourteen million. Now that actually may include. Um, some previously disposed assets, but you know, at its most, the commercial aircraft was 1.2 billion of revenue. Um, the aerospace was kind of equally small, and the business aircraft unit, which they are keeping, uh, generated about 5.6 billion of revenue last year. So, you know, still smaller than the transportation unit, but that is still a significant business that they have kept. Right, and the purchase price for these uh, for these asset sales, uh, what what was sort of the asset book value involved? Yes. Yeah, so for the uh, the the uh, commercial aircraft, that was for 476 million. The aerostructures unit was about 833 million, and the transportation segment that was sold to Alstom was for about 9.1 billion of proceeds. Got it. Okay. So basically, following these transactions, Bombardier went from a sort of multifaceted um, transportation uh, business to a pure play uh, business jet business. Is that right? Yeah. And, and funny enough, so that's essentially what, what, what the claim of, uh, you know, from the Boy Schiller letter was that they've gone from, I think it might've been actually verbatim, like a pure play uh, business aircraft company, uh, you know, from, from this, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, a multi, a multi revenue generating stream company. Got it. Okay. Well, that, that's a, a nice segue into my next question, which is, you know, this note holder letter. Why, why exactly is it that Antara is alleging that these transactions taken together constitute a breach under the indentures? Well, I mean, you know, for exactly what, what we were just saying, I mean, they, they you know, and this is, this is in their letter, we can get to kind of, uh, you know, my, my opinion down the road, but you know, their letter said, you know, this company has gone from four operating units to one, 
um, and and you know they, they were significant asset sales. Um, when these investors bought into the the 2034 bonds, which were entered into in I believe 2004, you know they they thought they were they were you know buying the debt of a company that had all these different operating units, uh, kind of doing you know a lot of different things. So you know if there was a downturn in one, there'd be an upturn in another. And so they are saying that the company is a fundamentally different company today than it was even two years ago. And they are that way because they have, they've essentially disposed of, you know, three quarters of the operating segments. Um, and, and the result is, is a materially different company than what these investors had, had thought they, they were investing in. Right. So, well, what is the specific provision under the 2034 notes indenture that uh, Antara talks about in its letter? Well, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, fairly fairly common provision in all in all bonds. I mean, the 2034 indenture in, in two different places. It, it, you know, they have a mergers covenant, and which says that um, the company will not sell all or substantially all of their assets. Um, and and here it says, you know, they, they they consider the asset sales kind of together, whether they're you know related or not. But it's still essentially just a, a restriction on selling all or substantially all assets. There's a separate covenant in in the indenture. That is, it just restricts um, the sale of all or substantially all assets. The one, the mergers covenant would permit it if the transferee who received all the assets assumed all of Bombardier's debt, which of course did not happen here. So the, uh, Antara is alleging that the company has violated these covenants by selling all or substantially all of their assets. Right. Okay. And so, well, I understand from your article that a lot of this analysis basically hinges on how a court might interpret the term all or substantially all. Uh, can you can you tell us what that means and, and how we know whether a sale or a series of sales would rise to that level? Well, so, you know, that is the frustrating thing. Um, you know, this is a really interesting issue. And, you know, we've kind of been talking about it just, you know, obviously not in the podcast form, but we've been talking about it all week. Um, the, the frustrating thing with this issue is that there is no kind of bright line rule as to what all or substantially all means. And, you know, I think that's probably uh, very intentional just because it kind of gives you know, issuers and borrowers some leeway, but it also gives uh, investors some kind of, you know, protection just because, you know, they can essentially craft that to whatever it means. But, you know, as it's played out in court, and there have been a whole host of, of cases where uh, investors have sued companies alleging that they have sold all or substantially all assets, for the most part, uh, courts kind of have taken, have adopted a framework um, in which they, um, you know, they kind of look at whether, uh, sales constitute all or substantially all by looking at kind of quantitative and qualitative reasons. Um, but again, you know, there have been cases where a company has sold 70% of its revenue generating assets and it was found to have not sold all or substantially all assets. There, there, there was a company that sold 30% of its revenue generating assets and it was found to have sold all or substantially all. So, um, you know, the, kind of the best we can do is kind of lay out the reasons for you know, why and why not these sales would have breached the covenant. But, you know, before that, there's just one uh, kind of other issue um, that, that needs to be addressed. And that's whether um, kind of three separate asset sales, you know, done, you know, months apart um, can be looked at as constituting essentially like one whole sale, you know, for purposes of determining all or substantially all, or whether they can be looked at, you know, as one, and then there's a pause and then there's another. Um, and in Bombardier's case, they the provision in their document is very unique and, and uh, I don't think I've seen it before where it says that um, it will not sell all or substantially all of its assets um, you know regardless um, 
it, but it aggregates all of the asset sales and it says related or unrelated transactions and whether at the same time or over a period of time. So the difference in this in this situation is that um, the, the courts don't need to determine how it's going to judge whether the company sold all or substantially all because the bonds dictate that all three of the asset sales need to be looked at as uh, one big aggregate sale, um, which is that is helpful for for Antara in this case. Right. Okay. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, basically, regardless of what the case law says, the indenture requires that a series of transactions be aggregated for purposes of this disposition as a whole covenant. Is that right? That's correct. That's only for that's a, that's a unique provision. But here, that that's that's exactly right. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, I, I mean, we, we might be repeating what you've already sort of laid out for us, but can you just walk us through some of the quantitative and qualitative arguments that Antara raises in its letter? Yeah, sure. So, um, so they, um, their their quantitative arguments are that the of combined re uh, the combined revenue of the sold assets, um, you know, for the 2018 fiscal year, uh, was between 63 and 69 percent of total revenue, and their uh, their EBIT for uh, let me see the second quarter of 2019 was 65.5 percent. So you know it's it's you know that the numbers don't lie. I mean that that's a you know that that's their argument. It's a fairly strong argument, um, given that you know if it were between 50 and 55, you know who knows. But you know, but between 60 and, and, and 66, that is, you know, it's pretty convincing. But um, those are their quantitative. Qualitatively, they they said that, you know, in the aggregate, those sales effectively changed the nature of the business, and the dispositions were not in the in the ordinary course of Bombardier's business, and as a result, it 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 changed the fundamental nature of the company, and it, it turned it into one. Um, you know that the that the that the bondholders kind of did not essentially agree to when they bought into the company's debt. Got it. And the company has not responded to the to this letter, correct? Um, we've heard that their that their lawyers have responded directly to Boy Schiller, but we have not seen that letter. No. Got it. Okay. Well, I mean, on on its face, Antara's arguments seem pretty persuasive to me. Um, but what what are some of the counter arguments that you expect the company to make in response? Yeah. So, um, so for the quantitative argument, and, and uh, bear in mind, all all case law, uh, when 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 courts have considered this issue, they they really have kind of really focused on just the total assets part. So, um, so their their analysis kind of looked at the value of those assets. However, you know, as I said, there's no bright line rule that doesn't mean uh, that will continue going forward. Um, and I, I bring that up because, um, you know, all all of the units that were sold, they yes, they contributed, uh, you know, significant revenues, but they also um, they also were responsible for a significant amount of liabilities. Um, you know, for instance, in in the 2019 fiscal year, the the um, you know the the aircraft business that they sold and the aerostructures business accounted for 1.8 billion of total liabilities and in for fiscal year 2020 the transportation segment constituted 10.1 billion of, of total liabilities so you know while um, we have not really found any cases where courts have kind of considered that as a counter to revenue generation um, it is significant and the, and the company can say well yes we sold uh, significant revenue generating assets but they also you know hurt us uh, in terms of their liabilities. Um, and, and just one other uh, thing that they might argue um, is that the business aircraft unit, which is the unit they've kept, 
um, they have been steadily growing their revenue um, from about 4.9 billion fiscal year 2018 to 5.6 billion in fiscal year 2020. Uh, whereas the transportation unit has gone from had gone from 8.9 billion in revenue in 2018 to 7.8 billion in 2020. So, um, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if they argued, you know, yes, we sold three of our segments, but we kept the the growth one, and 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 the other three were kind of you know steadily declining in terms of their revenue contribution to the point where you know if the company had projected by 2025 that the business unit, the business aircraft unit may have been responsible for 70% of revenue, let's just say, um, they, they may argue that, you know, if you look on kind of a, a forward-looking basis, it, it, it is not a sale of all or substantial. Again, it would be a unique argument, but but it wouldn't be surprising if they if they posited it. Okay, got it. And what about on the qualitative side? What uh, might the company argue there? So, so for qualitative, and, and again, this one is a little more murky just because, you know, qualitative obviously is, is subjective, but um, you know, I went back and kind of just looked at the company since uh, 2004, which is when the 2034 indenture was uh, was executed. And I mean, since then, you know, the company has gone through a number of internal corporate reorganizations where they have gone from, you know, two business units to three to four down to three again and now to one. And, and the reason I bring that up is just because um, if the argument is, you know, they have uh, fundamentally changed the nature of their business. Um, you know, and if you just look at the number of segments that they have that they have had, they have continually changed that. So that's not really changing the fundamental nature. And in addition, the company has historically, you know, sold off um, units before. Uh, you know, in December of 2003, the company sold a recreational product segment for 740 uh, Canadian 740 million Canadian dollars. Um, and you know, in, in uh, in 2018, they kind of sold a Q-series aircraft program for 300 million. So, point is, you know, they have had a history of uh, corporate reorganizations and a history of dispositions to the point where, you know, I, I'm not so sure that the company really has fundamentally changed um, by by the mere fact that they've gone from four to one operating segments. Got it. So, in other words, the company might argue that while the sales since June 2020 may have been significant. They shouldn't be considered a fundamental change because of the company's long history of asset divestitures. Yeah, correct. Exactly. So, well, do we know how long Antara has been in the notes? Uh, um, I, I don't, and I, I don't think that has been disclosed. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, well, th that brings me to my next question then. So, how, how does this get resolved consensually, if, if, that's even, if there's even a path forward for that? What is Antara asking for? So uh, Antara, the letter said that they would accept uh, being taken out in a make whole of um, 45 discounted at treasury plus 45 basis points. Um, now, now these notes and, and all of Bombardier's notes, um, they can only be redeemed by a make whole through maturity. So Antara is not asking for anything less than they would be owed if the company voluntarily redeemed them. Um, just right here, given the, the long dated maturity here and the coupon, is 7.45%. Um, the that the, uh, you know the make whole payment for these notes would be about 158. Um, so it's significant, and that is what Antara is asking for. Um, and you know the problem is that um, you know if the company were to do this, and, and so Antara is the only note holder who's brought this, but this language where it aggregates the asset sales as one is in uh, all of Bombardier's notes. So. You know, even if it were willing to pay off one investor, 
Um, the fact that this is now kind of public knowledge and the fact that the company has kind of gone out and is trying to do a consent solicitation, um, it, it would really set a bad precedent if it kind of negotiated here, just given that um, most holders under most bonds could probably bring a similar argument. Right. So if you give in here, you're going to have to give in to everybody. Exactly. Well, so say then that the company refuses to take Antara out at par plus the make hole. What happens next? Can Antara accelerate the notes on its own? Um, and, and if it does, can it still claim the make hole? Yeah. So look, so normally um, in, in today's high yield bonds, uh, you know, you only need 25 or 30% uh, of, of note holders to accelerate. Uh, a majority can waive it. Here, um, the 2034 notes are, are unique in that you need 50% to even accelerate here. So um, Antara right now, um, I, I, I'm sorry if you said this already, they own uh, about 83 million of the uh, outstanding notes, which is not a majority yet. So they would need um, they would need some other holders to come on board if they wanted to accelerate. But yes, that's what would happen. If the company uh, didn't do anything, um, you know, Antara, and let's say they got 50%, they, they could accelerate claiming that there was a default, you know, then it would go to court to, to determine if there, if there were a default or if there weren't a default. So um, the fact that, the, that there would be an event of default in and of itself does not mean there was definitely a default or event of default. It just, it, or they, you know, they breached the covenant. It just, that's the next step in the litigation to, to resolve the issue. Okay, got it. All right, well, is there anything else uh, that we or, uh, or our listeners should know about the situation? Um, no, I mean, I think that's it. I, I, I do want to stress that it's, it's a very frustrating situation in that, um, you know, typically in these event-driven um, uh, situations, you know, we might, we might kind of put forth our, our like opinion or just kind of, you know, maybe argue one, one way a little more heavily than the other. Here, it just, it's so unknown because, um, you know, courts have just, they're all over the place in, in, in the ultimate determination of these cases. So it's it just frustrating in that, you know, everything I, I think could be completely, there's, there's as good of a chance that I'm wrong as there is that I'm right. So um, it, it just, it, it's frustrating in that situation, in that respect, but it's, it just, it's a very interesting issue um, nonetheless. Well, I, I agree that it's a very interesting issue, Peter, and it's one that we'll definitely be monitoring closely in the coming weeks. So all right. Well, with that, um, you know, thanks, Peter, for joining us, uh, as always. And uh, we look forward to having you on again. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right. All right take care. care. Bye. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe and have a great Mother's Day. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>